Hello and welcome back to 365 Days with MXM Tune. I'm Maya, a singer, songwriter, video maker, Oakland native, and an assumption questioner. I'm also a huge fan of history. I love untold stories, gross facts, hidden secrets, and anything weird, dark, and funky from the past. Each day, I'm going to share one of my favorite deep cuts with you. So let's take a look at today's stories. It's 365 with MXM Tune. New facts every day, so don't leave too soon. I'm gonna teach you stuff, no, it won't be tough. Gonna go a year till you've had enough. It's 365. Have you ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome? It's a phenomenon in pop psychology where victims of kidnapping or abuse develop feelings of empathy or love for their captors. We see versions of it all over pop culture, like Belle falling in love with Beast in Beauty and the Beast, or Christine and the Phantom himself in Phantom of the Opera. Stockholm Syndrome is also a surprisingly popular song title used by bands including Blink-182, One Direction, Muse, and Yola Tengo. But did you know that many psychologists don't consider Stockholm Syndrome a real condition? In fact, popular belief in Stockholm Syndrome relies a little too much on sexist media narratives and a victim-blaming interpretation of trauma response, rather than any psychological diagnosis. Let's reverse. On this day in 1973, an armed man entered a bank in Stockholm, Sweden, and tried to rob it. He took four hostages at gunpoint and barricaded them in a bank vault with him. The man... Jan Erik Olsen demanded 700,000 in currency, a getaway car, and the release of his friend, Clark Olofsson, who was still in prison. Oddly enough, the authorities gave him what he wanted, brought him the money, the car, and the friend, but they wouldn't let him leave his hostages in tow. Thus began what would become a six-day hostage crisis inside the bank. It was the first crime in Sweden ever to be broadcast on live television and gripped the globe. But what truly marked this event in cultural history was the unexpected way the hostages behaved towards their two captors. The police noticed that by the second day, the hostages were on a first-name basis with Olsen and Olofsson. Yes, their names sound super similar. They also noticed that everyone trapped in the vault seemed fairly relaxed together. But when an officer was allowed in the vault to check everyone's health, the hostages became very tense and fearful. Later, the hostages would describe how Olsen and Olofsson made them feel safe. The two men wrapped one woman in a wool jacket when she was shivering, soothed others from nightmares, and even told one woman to not give up trying to reach her family by phone. This doesn't excuse any of Olsen's actions, but it does help to understand the hostage's point of view. The friend who had been brought in, Clark Olofsson, particularly seemed to develop the most trust with the hostages. Finally, on August 28th, nearly six full days later, police pumped tear gas into the vault and the perpetrators surrendered. But don't worry, it stays weird. The hostages stayed in the vault until they were assured their captors wouldn't be shot. Then, once everyone had finally left the vault, two hostages begged the police, don't hurt them, they didn't harm us. Jan Erik Olsen was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but later lived a pretty normal life with his wife and child. He has apologized publicly for his actions. Clark Olofsson was acquitted by an appeals court for responsibility in the hostage event, but was sent to serve out the rest of a previous prison sentence. Oddly enough, Olofsson is the one who continued a life of crime, escaping prison, robbing banks, smuggling drugs, and ending up back in prison. In 2018, he finally seemed to be done and lives in Sweden as a free man. 
In the aftermath of the hostage event in 1973, as experts tried to understand what had happened, the consulting psychologist for the police coined the term Stockholm Syndrome to describe the empathetic bond the hostages seemed to have towards their captors. The final twist to our story comes in April 2020, when a viral Twitter thread reanimated public interest in the term and told us we were all wrong about it. The Twitter thread outlined arguments from a 2020 book by investigative journalist Jess Hill called See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control, and Domestic Abuse. The book calls Stockholm Syndrome a myth invented to discredit women victims of violence by a psychiatrist with an obvious conflict of interest, whose first instinct was to silence the women questioning his authority. The book describes what really may have happened in that bank vault in Stockholm. What was the real problem according to the hostages themselves? overly aggressive police tactics. The hostages said that they were more in fear of their lives from the police than they were from their captors. According to the hostage group, the police treated them roughly, openly stated that they would shoot the hostages if they had to, and regularly escalated the situation. Instead of questioning the police response, experts simply came up with the term to blame the hostages. But the hostages' cooperation with their captors was a survival strategy, not a form of insanity. In fact, victim behavior is usually an adaptive trauma response, where the victim is finding the best way to survive and cope in an otherwise inescapable situation. What many of us think of as Stockholm Syndrome could be a form of trauma bonding, which is far more correct in terminology. Trauma bonding is an attachment developed between a person and someone who is abusive towards them. Trauma bonding is a subconscious survival mechanism that doesn't serve us anymore and is hard but not impossible to break. There are many resources online for how to break out of abusive relationships or help someone you love to make a plan to leave an abuser. You can start at thehotline.org for resources. In the end, while Stockholm Syndrome makes for a tantalizing story, it's important to understand its origin. What seems like a story of twisted affection between captor and captive might actually be a story of improper police response, use of force, and a group of victims fighting to survive in the best way they knew how. Now, let's talk about music. This one is for the Swifties. On August 23rd, 2019, Taylor Swift released her seventh studio album, Lover, to the absolute frenzy of her fans and much global fanfare. Lover was her first album after splitting with her label, Big Machine Records, with whom she had massive disagreements and, sorry for the pun, bad blood. Get it? Because, you know, that's one of her song titles. Anyways, you totally knew that. With Lover, she emerged as the confident, savvy master of her own fate, ready to move on from her label and celebrate a new place of stability in her life. The vibe on Lover is, for the most part, light, frothy, synth, and retro pop. The album also saw Taylor working with other artists like her longtime collaborator Jack Antonoff, producer Frank Dukes, Brendan Urie from Panic at the Disco, and The Chicks. Three of the album's singles hit the Billboard Top 10, breaking the all-time record for a female artist with simultaneous entries. The album sold 3.2 million copies in 2019 and established Taylor as the top-selling musician of the year. It was her sixth number one album on the Billboard 200. As she sings on the single, Me, with a wink to the fans and the haters alike, I promise that you'll never find another like me. And now for today's final segment, I'll be going back into my own photo archives to see what I was up to on a August 23rd in my life. On August 23rd of 2016, I started my first day of junior year in high school. Oh gosh, 
I'll tell you one thing. I kind of miss school in terms of like, I really liked the aspect of school being able to learn in tandem with people. I do not, however, miss going to school. I went to school in an entirely different city from where I lived. And so I had to commute like about an hour every single day. And I remember, I think in my freshman year, I had to wake up at 545 every single day in order to get to school on time. And it was so exhausting because I probably go to bed around like 3 a.m. every single night now. If I was surviving off of like two hours of sleep every single day, I think I might pass away. Um, I'm glad that I don't have to do that anymore though. And now I can sleep in sometimes and I work from home. So there's nowhere for me to commute anyways. (laughs) Thanks for going back in time with me and remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Come back tomorrow for more stories from the past. It's 365 with MXM Tune. New facts every day, so don't leave too soon. I'm gonna teach you stuff, no, it won't be tough. Gonna go a year till you've had enough. It's three.